0: Welcome to Finding My Yum, a sex-positive podcast celebrating all forms of sexual expression. Each week, we bring on a new guest to share their journey. We talk honestly and openly about what they're into and what sex, kinks, love, and more look like in the real world. I'm Jerry Courtney Austin,
1: And I'm Will Lentz.
0: And we are your hosts. And today we are thrilled to have Dr. Lauren Fogel here to talk about her practice as a clinical psychologist and sex therapist. Uh, We talk about the definition of sex positivity. We throw that that terminology around a lot. And so it was nice to go back to the roots and be like, what is actually sex positivity? Uh, We talk about relationship boundaries, how to have communication. She's amazing. I love her advice. And uh, yes. But before we get into that, Will and I wanted to talk about the recent abortion bans that uh, have been enacted most recently in Arkansas um, that we have feelings about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We do. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty clearly an attempt, or at least it seems that way to me uh, and to everyone that I've read, um, an attempt to try to challenge uh, Roe versus Wade at the federal level um, and try to overturn abortion um, on the federal level, Uh, which isn't great. You know, in fact, uh, I'll go out and say that it is bad Uh, and hopefully that does not happen.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting that uh, Monday was International Women's Day. And then this legislation comes a couple days later, banning all types of abortions in Arkansas, even incest and rape. The only uh, qualification that would allow one is if the mother is in danger. So. Uh, I just wanted to read a couple of stats because states across the entire United States are um, enacting these provisions and, and getting ready for the possibility that Roe v. Wade would be overturned given the three justices that Trump was able to appoint. Um, and so we're going to post this article in the show notes just for reference uh, but here are some highlights about the legislation that is, is currently happening and affecting people all over the country. So 21 states have laws that could be used to restrict the legal status of abortion. Nine states retain their unenforced pre row abortion bans. Ten states have post row laws to ban all or nearly all abortions that would be triggered if Roe were overturned. Nine states have unconstitutional post row restrictions that are currently blocked by courts but could be brought back into effect with a court order in Roe's absence. Seven states have laws that express the intent to restrict the right to legal abortion to the maximum extent extent permitted by the U.S. Supreme Court in the absence of Roe, and three states have passed a constitutional amendment explicitly declaring that their constitution does not secure or protect the right to abortion or allow use of public funds for abortion. Um, and that is just like what we're starting with, um, you know, as as Amy Coney Barrett is now uh, a full member and 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 people are definitely taking these these cases to to the federal level. And I find it fucking terrifying, <laughs> like absolutely yeah. terrifying.
1: Absolutely. And I, and I and I think it I think it's appropriate to feel that way. Um I don't think that that means there's nothing that we can do, obviously, um, but I do think it's worth noting, too, that on that same article, we do see that there are states, that, too, that are that have laws on the books to protect abortions. There's uh, 14 states in the District of Columbia that, that have that um, already in there. Um, Two states and d c have codified uh the right of abortion throughout pregnancy without state interference, and twelve states explicitly permit abortion prior to viability or when necessary to protect the life and health of a woman so While there is a lot of like uh things to be worried about and um and unfortunately like it is look at the end of the day it should be a federal thing. people should be allowed to do it because there plenty of people that might be stuck in a state like Arkansas and can't get to. A state like California, where it might be more protected, um, will, will, will suffer if it's not allowed. Um, so it's not we can't take solace in the fact that there are some states that are that are doing the right thing, um, but know that there are people out there that are working for it, too. Uh, and so, yeah, we should be terrified and we should be alarmed by it. Um, but there's work to do. And I think that, you know, I think. With the right pressure, uh, I think that uh, I I am a little hopeful too, and maybe it's just maybe I'm being naive there, um, and I and I will own that if I'm being naive. Uh, but I'm hopeful that with the right kind of uh, people in place, we can we can protect the right to abortion.
0: Yeah, you know, I hope so. I mean, we talk a lot about body autonomy on on this podcast, and 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 this idea of like policing women's bodies and policing women's choices, and more to this point, Roe v. Wade protects privacy. So, you know, yeah. we, we've talked about this before, but this is such a multi layered issue that is not just uh, abortion. And while right. I think every every woman and uterus having person has the right to choose whether they want to bring a child into this world under whatever circumstances, uh, you know, it is their choice. There is also so much more to what is going on. Um, and so I know Planned Parenthood is is obviously a huge advocate and, and resource. And yes, we'll, we will post additional resources, but I do think it's it's important to be aware of what is happening if, you 100%. know, even if you're in a, a state that is more available and permissive, like we, I live in California, and will you're you know soon to be back in California, um, that so we're just understanding what's going on because there's so much division across across the country and we really need to have a united front um, for those of us who believe that that the the option of the choice is is important, and that privacy is important on, on, on multi-levels. So, um, yeah, it's something to look for, and we'll we'll keep updating as more news is available um, and as more resources become um, more apparent and things to get involved in. But we did want to chat about it a little bit because it feels like such a big deal mm-hmm. um, and, and, honestly, to me, such a fucking regression <laughs> of just, like, progress that we've made. So, so yeah. Um, but there is hope, just like Will said, and um, I, I am hopeful that we can come together and the more awareness that we have and the more that we're talking about this and actively pushing against it, um, that, you know, that, that's what we can do. So, yeah. Um, if you have any comments, or you know you have more information, and you want to chat about it, we we would love to hear from you. We're always interested in getting feedback and um, having a dialogue, so please reach out to us. Uh, and so, without further ado, we are gonna get going with this episode with Dr. Lauren Fogle. Um, we do talk about you know a lot of different amazing things with her practice, and I love her point of view. So enjoy. Yay! Welcome to Finding My Yum. I'm so excited. Today, we have Dr. Lauren Fogel-Mercy here, who is a clinical psychologist and certified sex therapist practicing in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She specializes in sexual health, such as low sexual desire, libido mismatches in relationships, arousal difficulties, orgasm difficulties, and sexual pain. She's also trained in Gottman Method couples therapy to help people improve their relationships. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me
0: yeah i'm so excited i love you know one of the coolest things uh, one of the uh the bright spots i think of covid that came out of this is like how how much we can connect with people all over the globe all over the country and do i've been able to do interviews with people from all over so it's awesome that you're joining us from minneapolis thank you so much yes
2: i bet where you are it's a little warmer than it is here
0: oh my god yeah it's like almost summer weather here it feels like (laughs) is it freezing there
2: it's cold i you know i haven't i haven't checked the weather i haven't been outside we're actually on a warming up front from really cold temperatures so it's actually you know in minnesota you'll see people in shorts once it's like 35 or 40 coming from a cold streak
0: yeah, when it's like sixty five here, I have my ski parka on one hundred percent. Absolutely, my grandparents are from uh, Minnesota, but then they moved to Tucson, Arizona, so that they, you know, the weather wouldn't affect like their joints and and bones and stuff. But yeah, so I have no concept of living and dealing with any of that. I just have a concept of dealing with like over you know hundred degree weather, <laughs> which is its own thing.
2: Well, I'm from Toronto originally, so I know cold weather, but then I lived in Phoenix for five years, so I know hot weather, so I've kind of been all over the map
0: all over the gamut. Um, amazing. Well, I, I'm so excited to have you here. We're going to talk about um, lots of different things. I want to just start with defining what sex positivity is. And I, I think you've done a really good job on your social media of talking about this term and really what the definition is. And, you know, we've adopted it for the podcast and it resonates and means something really deeply for me, but I don't think we've ever really defined it like uh, at all. And, and, and what that means in terms of Living like a sex positive life and 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 having a sex positive aspect. So I would love for you to discuss what what it means to you um, and how you define it.
2: Yeah, and you know I will say with a definition like many definitions, this is going to be my version or a variation of a similar definition that maybe other people would also utilize. Um, but I think of it at its root as um, you know respecting. Um, your own and other people's sexual needs and desires. And as long as nobody's being hurt and everyone is consenting, that you respect other people's freedom and individuality to do what works best for them. And so that may not always align with how you live your life and the choices that you make, but it's this basic um, respect and understanding for variation and diversity within sexuality. And I think it extends beyond sexuality and can include um, gender and orientation and what we do with our bodies. All of that can be sort of part of the umbrella of sex positivity. So, you know, as long as other people are doing what works best for them, that we respect that.
0: Yeah, I love that. Um, You know, the podcast name, Finding My Yum, came from the term, Don't Yuck Somebody Else's Yum, and that you can celebrate what somebody else is into without, um, you know, personally enjoying it, but just like celebrating like, oh my God, I don't like that at all, but I'm so excited that you're into it. <laughs> you right,
2: know? right, exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, And I, I'm curious, and if you don't know the answer to this, I can absolutely look it up, but like, do you? know when more this term came about or or just even framing our understanding of sex and sexuality we were sort of putting it into this perspective um because i don't i don't quite know what to call the other side of it (laughs) i mean i guess it's more like from my point of view like more oppressive viewpoints of of trying to police bodies of trying to control other people's expression
2: Yeah. You know, it's a great question. I don't know if I even know the answer to like, when did we make this shift and, or when did we use that terminology? Um, I certainly don't think it's super recent. I mean, it must go back many years. The training program that I came from at the university of Minnesota has been around since the seventies. And so I'm, I'm assuming that it's sort of aligned with what their mission has been all along. So it's sure. my guess would be maybe around the 60s or 70s, but it would definitely be something to look up.
0: Yeah, we'll have to, um, I'll look it up for the, the intro and we'll talk about it. Um, and so that brings me a, a perfect a moment to just segue into your background and what made you want to become a psychologist and then specifically add on um, this, you know, sex therapist certification, which I know is an additional uh, component that actually, we had many psychologists on who have done this training program. So, I'd love to hear about yeah, what like what drew you to the field and and your journey throughout your studies of of your own experience within it.
2: Yeah, you know, I I knew really young what I wanted to be when I grew up. I, I kind of discovered what psychology was when I was a freshman in high school. And we were doing um like a life skills course and looking into different professions and fields and, you know, what kind of education would you need to pursue those kind of jobs? And mm-hmm. when I heard and read about psychology, I was just like, OK, that's that's it for me. That's what I'm going to do. And <laughs> we <figured it> out. <laughs> Yeah, I just, I had a really positive view of the field and had done some, you know, therapy as a kid for, you know, part of family therapy and individual therapy. Like we we were just really pro-therapy in my upbringing. And so it just seemed like sort of a natural progression for me and a calling, so to speak. And um, it was a little bit later in my teens that I started to develop just so much curiosity and interest into like, what are people doing? What are they not doing? And we don't talk very openly about this and really trying to get a gauge for like what's normal and, um, you know, kind of reference, reference and and reference myself and in, in maybe in comparison to others, but not in an unhealthy way, but just like what are we all doing here? And like, what does this look like?
0: Do you mean in terms of behavior or even like, you know, sexual expression and exploration or, um, yeah. What what do you mean in terms of like, I guess the term normal, what did that mean to you?
2: Yeah, it was, I think it was just like a curiosity of sort of what are my peers doing and where do I fall in this group? And, <laughs> um, you know, it's hard, you know, we want to be careful of not comparing ourselves to others in a way that we feel like we have to live up to someone else's standards. But we also do something called social referencing, which is, you know, getting information so that we can kind of make sense of our surroundings in the world. Sure. And so when you don't have a lot of information or discussion around something like sex is often treated,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you don't really have a sense of what does this look like? And where am I in this space? And what are what do I want to do in this realm of life? Um, So I just noticed that I was really curious about it and um, reading books about like, uh, you know, puberty and things about um, girl sexuality as an emerging adult. And I just really enjoyed talking about it and had a lot of fun. And I found that I had an openness to talking about it that some other people didn't. Mm. And I saw that throughout my graduate school training. Um, I did my doctorate in psychology, and I noticed that I didn't have a problem talking about sexuality. And some of my peers felt really uncomfortable. And so it just seemed to feel like a niche for me that it was something that I felt comfortable with and I was interested in. And so it was. A career path that sort of made sense.
0: I want to get into uh, your doctorate program and and whether that was a component of the the curriculum because I do think it is important to discuss like what what is a part of these curriculums and and what. Do they find valuable to talk about when you're, you know, discussing therapy and psychology, which is like a relatively new field as well. So, you know, I within the last like hundred-ish years, right? Um. So, but I am curious, so like wh- you said that there wasn't a lot of discussion around it. And So what was the messaging of sexuality and sex and pleasure while you were growing up and while you were social referencing and kind of gauging um, where you were at?
2: Yeah. I mean, I grew up in what I think I would call a sex positive environment. My parents got us, you know, books when we were really young, like where did I come from and what's happening to me that are sort of like classic education books for kids that may be a bit outdated at this point, (laughs) (laughs) but it was very open. Like if you have questions, you know, you can come to us and I didn't personally receive a message that, you know, sex was prohibited or that I wasn't allowed to do it until a certain point. Like it was just very much like, you know, if you decide to do this, make good decisions and be informed. Um, but I know that's not the case for so many people that I talk to.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but then amazingly, I don't think in undergrad, I was, as focused on this area i was more focused on general psychology so i actually mm. managed to get through all of undergraduate and never took a course in uh human sexuality and then went to graduate Wild. school <laughs> right yeah i have i have a bachelor's degree in psychology never took a course about sexuality um and then when i got to graduate school i was clearer on my mission to become you know a sex therapist at some point and so Uh, this human sexuality course wasn't on the curriculum at my location of my school. So I petitioned the school and tried to get signatures to try to get this course. And I had a professor lined up and I had some signatures, but I didn't meet the threshold of signatures that I needed to have the course.
0: So
2: I went through my entire graduate school training, a master's degree, a doctoral degree, and I didn't start really studying you know, uh, sexuality from in like a formal way until after my doctoral degree.
0: And, you know, I, I think it's kind of, it's perfect it's almost perfect because it feels like it is a mirror for our society of like you don't talk about that stuff like that shit gets put in the closet we close the door like if you're with a partner you know then you deal with it in this like mythical intimate space that all of a sudden everybody's just supposed to know how to deal with um and and it's so crazy to me that like psychologists and and psych and you know I don't even know if psychiatrists but definitely in your experience and other people that I've heard that like, this is just not a part of the conversation.
2: I think the statistic or the the fact around medical school, which is where psychiatrists would go right, uh, or fall under is like 10 or less hours around human sexuality in all of med school training.
0: Right. And so, yeah, I guess in terms of like Western medicine, like that, <laughs> that I feel like is such a huge. Um it's a shame. I mean, it, it really, because it, it then it doesn't cultivate an environment where um, professionals are asking questions in regards to this and bringing it to people's attention of like, hey, the, you, the, you're like sex organs are crucial to who you are as a human and how you move through the world. Um, w- like, let's incorporate them into this into this um, full conversation of of living. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's really disheartening and it's unfortunate, and and there's just not sometimes uh, adequate resources for sure. people. I you know I get messages from people all over the world through social media, letting me know that you know they wish they could see me, and unfortunately, right now I'm kind of bound to only see people within the state that I work in. Based oh, on okay. Their- licensing regulations, Um, but I hear from people all over saying, you know, we don't have someone who does what you do in my country or in in my area, or, you know, if I were to recommend a physician, like there may not be a physician they could see for pelvic pain or certain Mm -hmm. sexual health issues. So it's really, it's really quite sad that there's just such a lack of resources in so many places.
0: Yeah, um and and speaking of that certification, I know there is a um and maybe you can talk to your opinion about this, but you know, I know that there is some kind of conversation around the regulations of like say psychologists and um You know, the difference between a psychologist and a life coach and the ability for life coaches, you know, they don't have as much training potentially right like there isn't as much, um, you know, that is required and for people who are psychologists who want to move into that frame it gives a lot more freedom they get to share a little bit more of themselves like there's not as much of a rigid framework and and uh, so i'm curious about your opinion about the distinction of the two um yeah because i you know i uh, to me this aspect of like allowing for a little bit more freedom and for psychologists and life coaches to be more human in the room um is is awesome. Um, but I, I imagine there's like so much on both sides of the, uh, the discussion.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really important that, you know, whoever uh, is kind of doing this work has the, um, you know, appropriate knowledge and professionalism to do the work. And yet, you know, the longer I'm in the field, the more I see how diverse helpers can be, and that it really doesn't have to be one particular pathway to, mm-hmm. uh, doing the kind of work that I do. So there are amazing, um, sex coaches, relationship coaches. Um, there are people who are, uh, mental health professionals of every different kind of background and level, um, who've come from different training programs. So, um, I do know that the certification that I did was more on the rigorous side in terms of more intensive, um, and that was for uh, ASEC certification as a sex therapist. But that's not the only pathway to go. Interestingly, though, in the United States, my understanding is that the number of certified sex therapists through uh, the ASEC organization, which is the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, uh, is about a thousand of us across the entire United States.
0: Oh my God, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> It's
2: really, it's small compared to the population and the need.
0: And, you know, talking about, you know, we are being relegated to practice within the state that you're licensed as well. Like you don't have the opportunity, like are, you know, who knows if those thousand people are sprinkled in every single state being able to offer these services to the millions and millions of people who absolutely would be interested in or are in need.
2: That's right. That's right. So some states may have like one or two for the entire state. And it's just, it's, it's not adequate for the need. Um, you know, it's, it's always interesting to me. I, I worried when I went into sex therapy that I would be too much of a niche and that I would run out of people, you know, that I would run out of clientele that, you know, there's only so many people who are going to have some of these specific issues and then I'm going to be sort of out of a job and i kind of wish that was true sometimes like it would be great if there wasn't such a need because i mean sure. who wants the need sure. um, but it's it's really been amazing to me how uh common these issues are around desire and arousal and orgasms um, they're really common and every practice that i know of in minneapolis is really busy
0: yeah and I know that
2: Through across the board in other states as well. So, you know, it's, it's really, it's becoming more and more common and more and more normalized as a, you know, valid kind of pathway to um, seek help for sexual issues.
0: Yeah, it's funny, I like, as we were talking, I had the image of Meet the Fockers come up, which was, mm-hmm. um, Barbara Streisand played this pretty, like, she's amazing, but she played a pretty stereotypical, like, what you would imagine a sex therapist is, yeah. right? This, like, yeah. you know, like, I, I don't know, like, sort of esoteric, like, ah, oh, we're gonna talk about Tantra, and I'm making you do all this stuff, and, 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 and now, having done the podcast, and, like, talked to so many sex therapists, just having the understanding of, like, whoa <laughs> you know?
2: she would she would I would probably classify her as more of like a sex coach sure sure so she like she has more latitude to sort of yeah. you know be hands-on whereas some you know licensed <laughs> mental health professionals may not have as much right. as <laughs> much uh flexibility
0: right exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i thought it was so funny because I remember seeing that and being like whoa that's Interesting. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that job existed. Um, yeah, and so amazing. So I'd love to talk about your, uh, you know, on on your Instagram, you talk a lot about like relationship advice and communication strategies, and um, so I would love to talk about you know the things that you encounter in in sessions and and some of like the biggest topics of um, you know just things that people struggle with that that you give advice on um, all the time.
2: Yeah. I I mean, I also do, yeah, I do relationship therapy in addition to sex therapy and the training, um, that I've had the most, uh, it has influenced me the most is the Gottman method. And that comes from Drs. John and Julie Gottman, who are world renowned. Uh, they formulated the Gottman Institute and, Uh, John Gottman's been doing research with couples and partners for 40 plus years. And um, so, you know, really solid and um, research-based sort of approaches to couples. Um, And so that's sort of the framework and the lens with which I see a lot of, uh, you know, clients who come to see me. And I'd say, you know, the most common thing, so outside of, you know, intimacy and sexual health issues or concerns... Um, A lot of folks are coming in because they're really getting stuck in conflict cycles. Mm. And so, you know, they may have, you know, solid friendship, they get along fairly well, they've got some shared interests, they've got some good habits and routines down, but they're really struggling to manage what we call perpetual issues. And so, you know, based on the research, about 69% of the things that you have conflict or arguments about are more perpetual than solvable, meaning they're gonna keep coming up over time. So if you have an issue around sex or finances or parenting or family, you know, they're usually more stable factors that don't just go away, Mm -hmm. like someone's personality or how they (laughs) operate around certain things or their, you know, annoying family member, like those are going to be there for a while. Yeah. And so, you know, these perpetual issues that just keep getting them tripped up. And so, um, you know, I, I find that that tends to be probably the number one thing that people come in to see me for is how do we work through this in a way that's less, um, you know, destructive or um, hurtful to us so that, because, you know, the ripple effect to conflict can be, you know, feeling really disconnected. And mm-hmm. and for some people they can bounce back from conflict more quickly than others. And for some it's, you know, it lasts days or weeks until they feel like they're, you know, ready to move past it or move on.
0: Sure. And And so what are some strategies that you uh, you talk about in terms of dealing with this perpetual conflict that comes up, these perpetual sort of ingrained concerns that, that definitely rear their head, um, like how to deal with them in communication strategies?
2: Yeah, you know, I think the the place I usually start with folks is just getting them, um, more practiced at taking turns being a speaker and a listener, because mm-hmm. what happens a lot in couples work, and I've seen this in myself too, I mean, we all do this, is you kind of have two people trying to speak at the same time. And they may not be speaking necessarily over each other, but sort of, I'm not really listening to you. I'm waiting till you stop talking so I can start saying more about my perspective. <laughs> and it's really, sure. I'm like stuck in my own position and not really hearing you and not even kind of listening or showing interest in trying to understand your perspective it's more about trying to get my point across
0: yeah like listening from a place of ego
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah listening listening to respond without listening to understand and those are really different because listening to understand is a really different kind of listening um, and so even just getting into a habit of taking turns. So what I do with couples and follows the Gottman method is, um, you know, have them pick like, okay, who's speaking right now. And then there's rules for the speaker and there's rules for mm-hmm. the listener. So basic rules when you're the speaker are talk about your own feelings and needs. It's not a time to point fingers and blame and this other person's being such a jerk and da da da. da you know, yeah. it's more like... You know, how are you feeling? How are you impacted? What's your perspective here? And then, um, you know, having this the listener uh, summarize back some of what they're hearing. So mm-hmm. this is what you're telling me, not to just pair it, but to just show like I'm registering what you're telling me and I'm following you. And
0: then you know for the right, and I just want to jump in because I feel like one thing that's so useful about doing that too is then you can also identify like, am I communicating effectively, and is the other person receiving what I'm actually trying to get across?
2: Absolutely, because there can be miscommunication in terms of is the message that I'm trying to convey being conveyed? Is it coming out the way I'm intending it to? Yeah, and then is it being received the way I'm intending for it to be heard? Yeah. Because I can have an intention and then the impact is it's something totally different. So it's a great way to flesh out if there's been miscommunication or to highlight if something that was really important got missed, like, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, I did say that and I really want to make sure you heard this important part that really matters to me. Yeah. And so then the listener has an opportunity to summarize a bit um, and even you know if they can offer some validation or empathy, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to agree with everything was just said, but more like I can understand, you know, where you're coming from, where your feelings are coming from, why you you know felt the way that you did, like just sort of it makes sense. Letting them know that it makes sense, yeah. and so even just starting there when it comes to some of these perpetual issues and because some of them are not solvable it may be that certain things are just like you know this is how we talk about it when it it comes up when we're discussing it cuz the goal is not always to solve something but to manage it better yeah mm-hmm. so if i'm an introvert and my partner's an extrovert which is true in my relationship <laughs> then, you know, the perpetual thing, maybe it's not like we're going to say, okay, here's how we're going to handle every situation for the rest of our relationship.
0: Sure. Yeah.
2: Like, how are we going to handle this event or this situation this time? And then we'll come up with a different plan next time. And we need a way to be able to talk about that without getting escalated and feeling like we're at war with
0: each other. Totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I love all that. And then is there an aspect, I mean, some of this sounds a lot like nonviolent communication as well, where, it, you know, being very cognizant also of like taking responsibility for one's own part in it and not using defensive language of like you, 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 right? And like right. labeling, which is just the word. <laughs> like it yeah. just feels so bad. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yes. Yes. It, my understanding is that it has a lot of overlap. I still, it's on my book list to read that book. I haven't gotten to it yet, but yes, it's, it's very similar. And, you know, it, it's, it's got elements of active listening. Um, What John Gottman talks about is how active listening is limited in that we don't want to just summarize back what our partner is saying without having some rules for the speaker. So it, if it's just active listening, then the speaker could be like, well, you're being a jerk. And then the listener is supposed to be like, so you feel like I'm being a jerk. Sure,
0: sure, <laughs> like sure, that, sure, sure.
2: That's really hard to have that move us forward in a positive way. Yeah. And it's also really hard to be a listener and to really take in information when you're feeling attacked or criticized yeah. or blamed. So it's really important that this kind of adds another element that there are some limits to what the speaker can say, because it's not just rail on your partner.
0: Right, 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 right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, all of that is so useful. And you know, I'd, sometimes it's very hard to implement oh. <laughs> because tensions get high or, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so- I,
2: I do not do it a hundred percent. Like <laughs> yeah. just, people need I- to know that.
0: So I'm curious of like your, um, I want to get back to some more strategies and, and things that come up, uh, you know, in sessions and working with, with humans of all different types in, in your own journey and dealing with your own partner and then having all of this knowledge and, you know, research, um, and information, like how has that affected how you approach relationships and sex and sexuality and, and, and your own like experience with, with intimacy and those those aspects.
2: I mean, I think so much of what I've learned has been so helpful for just my own relationships, both with my husband and with family members and boundaries and communication and and all of that Um, really helpful. Sometimes it can, you know, keep me too cognitive, like, you know, people have heard me talk about how, you know, probably the first year that my husband and I were together. Um, I would be like too stuck in the book, so to speak. I'd be like, you know, well, 69% of couples do, you know, and this is one of those things for us that you're supposed to do this right now. Like I was kind of following a script a little How too funny. strongly. <laughs> and so my husband was like, I need you to keep statistics out of our conflict. like- <laughs> you need to sort of rein that in that's I love that boundary
0: that's awesome totally so now if
2: that stuff does come to mind I just kind of keep it to myself and try to reorient to like yeah let's let's set that aside for a minute and just kind of be with this moment
0: Sure. Yeah, I imagine that sometimes that also would come up as like a defense mechanism. Oh, uh, you for know, sure. too of like, uh, you know, yeah, a displacement of like, well, let's look at the, <laughs> the facts.
2: Yeah, it's um, intellectualizing and it's it's yeah. getting away from emotions and getting more into like reason. And unfortunately, sometimes though that might be well-meaning, it can often leave partners feeling um, dismissed because especially if you're having an emotional conversation, if the response is intellectualized, it can feel like you're, you're turning away from them. Like you're not even responding at all.
0: Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, and and so do you also deal with um, you know, non-monogamous relationship types and and then how to encounter perpetual concerns that come up within, you know, a group dynamics or uh yeah, with with multiple people involved because I I I'm curious if it's the same thing or if there is a, a different approach.
2: I, I utilize though, you know, it was this method in a lot of couples therapy is not by research or design for multiple partners. It's usually like all the research has been around couples and dyads. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have found that a lot of the tools are the same and a lot of the principles are the same with some additional understanding of, you know, uh, ethical non-monogamy and polyamory. Sure. Um, and so it's sort of a blending of, you know, our understanding of, you know, multiple partners and using some of the tools for really, because, you know, some of those tools are just, they're their relational tools and they can sure. fit for two people or three people or more. So yeah. it's sort of a blending.
0: And so as far as other um like concerns that you encounter, what, what are some of the, the, the biggest things that come up in terms of in terms of like sexuality and intimacy? Um, I think libido is something that you've talked about and, and maybe mismatched partnership, um, and how to encounter those type of you know, concerns or struggles that, that come up in a relationship dynamic.
2: Yeah, I mean, the number one thing that I see and that my colleagues see as sex therapists is concerns around low desire. Mm. And then, you know, sort of tagging along with that is the mismatch in desire in a relationship, which is so completely common because you have two people with different needs and different ideas of what sure. that's gonna look like. And so it's sort of inevitable that at some point in a relationship, that's likely to come up.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, so I'd say that's sort of the number one that we see. Um, Among cisgender women, I tend to see also a lot of um, pelvic pain or sexual pain, Mm -hmm. which is a lot more common than people are aware of and still an area that is hard to find Um, you know, the right team for treatment for. So Mm -hmm. that's something that, um, that I do and kind of work as a team, often with a sexual medicine specialist and a pelvic floor physical therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, So kind of doing a holistic approach. Um, And then some problems with orgasming is also a really common issue that I see among cisgender women who come to see me.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was just going to bring it back to so in terms of like mismatched and and libido, um, or, you know, low desire, what what are the the strategies and the uh, sort of advice to give around around that stuff? Um, Because yeah, you're right. I mean, it makes sense that within any kind of partnership dynamic, especially within COVID, um, and coping mechanisms, like it's going to change.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'd say, you know, um, for, for, again, for cis women, but also this is just a good read in general for people, although the target sort of reader was made for cis women, um, is Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski, which is, I think, a really great read and talks a lot about really important concepts that I think are really freeing to understand. Um, and so one of those concepts that I like to talk about with low desire is the difference between spontaneous desire and responsive desire. Hmm. And so you know spontaneous desire is sort of what we think of as the norm that just sort of like my desire just emerges suddenly on right. its own without having right. to like do much for it. And certainly that's the you know image that we see depicted in media. And it's also really common, Um, you know, gender trends seem to go toward, you know, uh, men as being kind of more predominantly spontaneous, but certainly that's not true for everyone. Sure. And I've certainly seen it go the other way. Um, And then, you know, for others, it's more of this responsive desire style. And so what that means is instead of desire preceding arousal, it's that sometimes arousal needs to precede desire. So, you know, for all these folks who've been watching Bridgerton lately, for example, you know, that, you know, you might've gone into watching it and you weren't really feeling aroused and, you know, you were kind of sexually neutral and then you start seeing something that's sexual and relevant and kind of appealing to you. And then when you start getting the tingles, now you're like, oh, you know, I could go for
0: this. I'm kind of in the mood. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So what happens for a lot of people is just, they don't know that there's differences around that. And so they're assuming, well, if I don't have spontaneous desire, I don't have desire. Like it's just not there. Mm. But so many times I talk to people, women in particular, but people also of different genders where we talk about responsive desire. Like, have you ever been in a situation where, you know, you're not in the mood, but then your partner starts touching you or you start kissing and then you get into it like, oh yeah. So you have desire, like it's there. It's just, it's context dependent. And that's also a totally valid pathway to experience desire.
0: Yeah. I love that.
2: So I do a lot of educating around some of this stuff that like most people have never heard of and never been exposed to that is really helpful to know. Cause it can be really paradigm shifting and, and really comforting to know that like, oh, it's mine just works differently. It's not the same maybe as how my partner's desire works.
0: Mm -hmm. And then communication strategies around expressing that, I would imagine are very important as well of like, how do I communicate that this is different and that this is what I need to get to get, to feel turned on or to feel aroused or desire or, you know.
2: Yes, exactly. So, you know, if I start to realize that, oh, I have more of a responsive style for desire, then that might inform sort of what that means for me. And then communicating that to a partner, like, hey, you know, it's maybe not likely for me to just be sitting and watching you know, the news and then like, Oh, I'm kind of in the mood. Like we might have to do some things to create context for me to get aroused. And so we might have to think about this differently rather than just sort of waiting for this lightning bolt of horniness to hit you.
0: Yeah. There's something, I mean, I'm a big planner and so planning like already just like Gets me excited and and, and turned on in a certain way, but like even having like a sex date or a time where you're like, this is when we're going to invest in you know whatever kind of intimacy and whatever comes out of it. Even if, if there can be more planning, you know, if you're into scenarios and um a little bit more in the king scene, but like having a designated time to be like, this is dedicated to our exploration in whatever way that manifests
2: actually my number one recommendation for homework, but I I tweak it because I've heard many times where it's recommended to be like a sex date and, um, and for some people that works. So, you know, not going to yuck your yum. Like if that works for you and having a sex date works, great. Do that. Um, for some people, um, it ends up actually creating pressure on the experience because they feel like they're too, limited to like, okay, I said we were going to have sex. And for a lot of people, sex means intercourse to them. And, but now my stomach hurts. I don't feel well, or um, I'm really worried about work or something, you know, and now I'm just kind of going through motions and not really doing something that feels like it like adds up for me in this Mm -hmm. moment. And, you know, sometimes you can do that, but, but what we don't want to do is have that be like how you have sex all the time is just sort of going through motions to check a box. That's going to lead to low desire eventually, like, because that's just not the kind of sex that feels interesting and motivating to most people to just like go through it without fully being there. So what I do is I, I kind of expand that and I call it an intimacy date Mm-hmm. And so I kind of broaden it out then that like, you know, for most things in our lives, if we don't plan it or schedule it, it doesn't happen. Or we yeah. keep meaning for it to happen, but, it, you know, we don't get to it. So it, you know, treating it like anything else, that's a priority. It makes sense to put it on the calendar to be intentional, but it also really can help to keep it flexible so that it doesn't feel too demanding yeah. or pressured. So I'll often give my clients like a list. I call it like a menu of like, here's different things that you could do and think of it like making a reservation at a restaurant.
0: Totally. Like,
2: you know, you make the reservation, but don't pre-order your meal. Cause you don't really know what you feel like eating yet.
0: I love that. I love that. Um, context shift as well. Thank you for, for saying that because yeah, can, there can be like a lot of pressure around it. Um, and in like the linear way, I feel like we're taught to think about sex. It's very much like we're going from point A to B, absolutely. you know, and it doesn't leave a lot of room for anything else. So absolutely, um, yeah, I love that. Um, so I would like to talk about one more piece. Um, before we wrap up, is this, I, uh, you know, supporting largely c- cis women, but I would imagine people who have uteruses um, and, and, and in the pelvic health, I've brought on a couple um, physical therapists who deal with, with, you know, pelvic organ prolapse and with pelvic, uh, you know, problems and stuff. And so I'd love to know uh, on your end of it, like what, what does that support system look like and and what is the conversation surrounding, um, you know, this kind of sexual health?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's probably a dozen or more things that can cause uh, pain or discomfort with sexual activity, with insertion or penetration, or just in the pelvis in general. Um, And that can be everything from a hormonal issue to a dermatological issue to a muscular issue. So there's a lot of different things that can be causing that. So I think sometimes we we don't even know that that's a thing. And if we do, we think of just like one thing in mind, like potentially like vaginismus or something like that. And there's there's just a number of things that can be going on. So getting plugged in with the right medical provider, which often means seeing a specialist. And there is such a thing as a sexual medicine specialist. And so mm. seeing if that's something that is available to you in your area or not far Uh, from where you are can be really valuable. And then seeing a pelvic floor physical therapist who's really trained and specialized in the pelvic floor region um, can also be really helpful. And then my work is often um, supporting Often kind of directing them to those resources, the people that I work with and my clients, um, and also um, offering exercises for how to kind of ramp up to penetrative sex if that is a goal. Um, because if it's been painful, what happens is that our muscle memory will brace for pain. And so it kind of creates then the environment that's not so conducive to a comfortable sure. sexual experience. And it makes all the sense in the world. Your nervous system is trying to protect you. And so it's squeezing and pulling back and tightening and trying to protect you from harm and pain. Um, as, you know, whatever the medical treatment is improving, sometimes that braced response can still be sort of an automatic reaction.
0: Mm-hmm. Got it.
2: And so um, I really help people work through Kind of soothing that response back a bit, and kind of breaking things up into smaller pieces so that we can kind of ease back in instead of just like overwhelming the system.
0: Got it. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I, I, um, my journey in in sort of talking about reproductive health and and particularly, uh, you know, uterus having people's sexual health and then the pelvic floor, which affects all genders. um, I'm, like, blown away with the lack of information, the lack of of communication and conversation around this, and and the idea that, like, you know, there's something wrong with you inherently if, like, for some reason you can't enjoy it in that way or there's pain. Um, So I did want to touch on that. That's Yeah. That's such a good point. So awesome. Well, I have absolutely loved speaking with you. Thank you for taking your time to be here today. Uh, Where can people find you and and follow your social media, even if they're not in Minnesota and unfortunately can't become a client, but um, want to keep in touch with you and and learn from all the amazing things that you share.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, best place to find me, I'm most active on Instagram and I toggle that to Facebook. So if you're on either of those platforms and my handle is at Dr. Lauren Fogel Mercy and Mercy was with an S. Um, so that's probably the best place to find me right now. Um, and, um, and yeah, I, I like to post pretty regularly. So hopefully there's good information there and, um, information too on my highlights for how to get in touch with, uh, sex therapists in your area, relationship therapist, where to look for that.
0: Amazing. Um, well, thank you so much again for your time. Yay! This has been so great.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah.
0: Oh boy. Woohoo. Boy, oh boy. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Vogel. I it's such a blast chatting with you. Um, yeah, it's always it's always lovely to 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 really talk about I feel like when I when when I get to talk to psychologists as well, I'm like, oh yeah, how do I let's talk about my relationship questions <laughs> as well. And like of let course. me get more answers too about, you know, what other what other professionals are <laughs> suggesting for communication. Um, yeah, just tactics and tools and like not like anything's wrong, but it's just it's nice to be like, "Oh yeah, you know, these things definitely come up in in my relationship and, and and what 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 a great time to just add more tools to the tool belt. Absolutely.
1: yeah, it's always yeah. A good always a good time to add more tools
0: yeah exactly um yeah so as always please uh follow us on social media at finding my yum podcast on instagram and facebook we post behind the scenes we post clips uh please be a part of our community we love to hear from you slide into those dms i absolutely love any kind of um topic suggestion guest suggestion we take those all really seriously and we've brought on almost every single guest that's been suggested to us which is amazing uh and now we're on youtube so if you folks want to watch our recordings uh, and you're, you like a more visual medium, please subscribe to us on YouTube. All of the episodes are up on YouTube and we would love more subscribers and viewers uh, because then we can create more content and it's just, it's just so much more exciting. <laughs> so please <laughs> hit that subscribe button um, ASAP. Yeah.
1: Um, And as always, we are a podcast too. Um, So make sure to rate, review and subscribe. It helps the algorithm, gets us out to where more people can see us. So then we get more interesting people referring us to different guests. We uh, grow the community and get to do all kinds of cool, fun stuff that uh, we know Mm -hmm. you guys are going to enjoy. So um, hit that subscribe button, share with a friend uh, and let us know what you want to hear more of.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Um, We love you. We're excited to keep bringing you awesome, uh, exciting and thought provoking content. And we can't wait to see you next week. Stay yummy.